0: You have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learners or on the Learners Corner podcast, and today I am honored to be joined by Colin Hansen to talk with him about his biography of Timothy Keller. Now, you might be familiar with Tim Keller, he's written uh, so many books, and today we're going to uh, talk with Colin about Tim and his life and his influences and everything. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast or whether or not you've been listening for a long time, I do want to let you know that one of the best ways to continue on this journey of lifelong learning is through subscribing to my Substack, to where I just give out a whole bunch of recommendations from things that I am currently learning from, whether that be books, movies, podcasts, articles, songs, just a whole gamut of things. And... You know, today, and, uh, you know, again, you can find that in my Substack. And today is going to be a little bit of a a different episode because we are talking about Tim's life and some of his influences, but it's going to be a good conversation. I absolutely love this book. It's a very fascinating interview as well. And so let me tell you a little bit about Tim, and then we are going to jump right into the conversation. Actually, let me tell you a little bit about Colm and then we're going to jump into the conversation colin hansen serves as the vice president president for content and editor-in-chief of the gospel coalition he hosts the gospel bound podcast and has written and contributed to many books most recently rediscover church why the body of christ is essential he has been published in the new york times the washington post and offered commentary on cnn fox news npr bbc and many other places as well and he is the author of his most recent book timothy keller his spiritual and intellectual formation where colin interviewed uh just so so many people who had such an influence on tim's life about tim and the influence that they had on him as well and he is also uh and finally he is a member of iron city church in birmingham alabama and is an adjunct professor at Beeson divinity school where he also co-chairs the advisory board as well. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation where we take an inside look at the people and events that shaped Tim Keller. Well, Colin, it's so good to have you on the podcast today.
1: oh, thanks for having me,
0: yeah. And you know, you've uh, written this book, you know, the the biography of Timothy Keller. And you know, just as we begin, one of the places that I love to start is I love to talk about like the origin stories of books. Mm-hmm. And so I'd just love to start with that of, you know how you met Tim and how this project came to be.
1: I've known Tim since two thousand and seven and uh, actually was connected to a book that I wrote called Young Restless Reformed. I was uh, hoping to interview him for that book. It didn't really come across, didn't really work out that way, Uh, but then I started editing a series of books with him on Christ and culture, and then started working uh, with him and for him at the Gospel Coalition in 2010. And so the book uh really came about, it was something that I was hoping a long time ago that somebody somebody else would do. And um, then after his cancer diagnosis in May of 2020, I thought, well, somebody really does need to do this because we don't know how much time that we have. And it's one thing to be able to write a book after somebody is gone, but I thought there would be a lot of value to be, to talking to the source himself, to asking ask him these questions, ask him to reflect directly so we never had to guess someday, what was Tim thinking about this, or why did he do this, or where did he get that idea? And so that was where that um, that idea came from, and so the publisher Zondervan reached out to him and, and asked him if he wanted to do the book and, and mentioned that we would do it a specific way, that we would focus on his influences, um, not so much his influence, people he learned from, yeah. not so much of okay, the difference that he made. And so it was a novel approach, but one that um one that the publisher and I had recommended because of of how it suits him. And so we went through that, went through that process and then and then just from there it was, hey, I mean, do you want Colin to write that or somebody else? And and ultimately he decided uh, that he wanted to work with me on that project. And so that was um that was about three years ago.
0: Yeah. Talk to me more about the like how you went about writing the book, you know, you mentioned like you're writing about the the influences and the impact that they had on Tim and not so much Mm -hmm. about that. Talk to me about the difference between the two and
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, Every, every biography has a a section on how this person developed, where did they get these ideas? Who did they learn from? There's almost a sense of that's in a way maybe your your childhood or it's your coming of age and then you then you become important or famous and then you do all these things and the thing about tim is that he he's constantly evolved but by evolved i don't mean change it's more like a maturation process and so the the term that i use in the book or the the analogy i use in the book is actually from Tim himself in 2014, he recorded a video for the Gospel Coalition with Don Carson and John Piper, and he described these influences and growth over time as rings on a tree. And I thought, well, that's an especially good way of describing Tim's life and his ongoing influence. So rather than saying, hey, here's his family, here's his what he learned in college, here's how he became a Christian, here's... You know his early ministry years and things like that. It was more like he just kept learning, he just kept growing, he just kept maturing. He kept adding all of these rings on his tree with time, and um, and that 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 approach works for him. I, I don't know that if I were writing another biography that that I would be able to do that in the same way. Um, who knows what you know, how you, how you tell that story, but it works uniquely well for him because as I mentioned in the book, one of the most interesting turning points for me was when he writes his best-selling apologetic work, The Reason for God, publishes it in 2008, but immediately he's already thinking, this is obsolete. I got to try something else. Mm -hmm. And so he's always learning. He's always building, always changing. That includes even, even now, as he continues to battle with the uh, pancreatic cancer and, and, um, and that's why we we took that approach, and and thankfully the response so far from readers has been encouraging. I, I mean i I never found another example of a book that did this.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so who knows? Maybe we'll try it again someday, yeah. or <laughs> or, uh, or maybe it's just unique to Tim.
0: Yeah. Well, it really, is it is such an engaging book, and I'd love for you to like maybe talk more about what was about Tim's attitude or his manner about pursuing so many like pursuing so many influences beyond it and not you just um, not just stayed in like a like a narrow lane or anything what do you think helped him do that like were there any you know like what did he do to, to continue to pursue that at least from what you saw
1: I think it has a lot to do with probably the, the circumstances under which he became a Christian and did his ministerial training so um he he grew up in the post-war evangelical neo-evangelical movement and it was really those parachurch organizations that arose after world war ii that that shaped him primarily varsity christian fellowship as a student ministry as a as a conduit to british evangelicalism of c.s lewis martin lloyd jones j.i Pack, john stott He's already accustomed to learning from people who are from different eras, who are different denominations, different strengths, but very discernibly sharing a a kind of common heritage, especially Lloyd-Jones and Stott and Hacker. Then it's also a lot of what he learns at Gordon-Conwell. Gordon-Conwell is not a very old school. It was practically brand new by the time that he got there, and that was an interdenominational eclectic environment. Two people could go to the same school, really take different classes, different professors. Both might come out evangelical, but they would look pretty different. Uh, And so when you look back on his particular training, his life would have been very different if he'd gone to, say, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, which is where he later taught. But with that Reformed tradition, instead of a more eclectic approach where he's learning from a Presbyterian over here, and an an, an Anglican over here, or he's learning over here from a Baptist, and, and he's learning, you know, how to synthesize those, how to bring all of those different influences together. So it might be just the way his expansive mind works, his curious imagination, that might be the primary driver, but it might also be because he was just trained in interdenominational evangelical environments, that that could have been the could have been the bigger factor.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to go back to what you mentioned with uh, his book, uh, the Reason of God. I think it's the Reason of God or the reason for God. Yeah, um, and him discovering, you know, as literally as the book is coming out, uh, that this book doesn't work anymore. No. And then he does, mm-hmm. um, you know, he creates making sense of God. Can you take me through that mm-hmm. shift? For him, yeah. and even like talk to some of the influences and some of the the major ideas that he learned in terms of you know apologetics and engaging mm-hmm. culture through that.
1: Yeah, so um, I would say in many ways the reason for God, it did respond to a certain strain of atheism and apologetics that was still prominent in the two thousands. But that was a transitional time that the new atheists were were popular for a time, especially in response to two things: nine eleven, and then especially also then to the um, kind of dominance of of evangelicals in politics, especially under President Bush. And so those were kind of two major two major backlashes at the time, and the reason for God fits very well in that time period, and I would. I'd continue to commend the book today. I still think it's useful in a lot of different ways, but Tim was trying to anticipate where the culture was heading, especially in its increasingly secular um parts. And New York would certainly qualify for that, at least compared to where I live in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And so what was not what was not connecting was younger generations who maybe their grandparents went to church, but maybe their parents had stopped going to church, and then they grew up, and they really just didn't have any kind of nominal Christian background and did not have the categories of sin or judgment or afterlife or God. It just didn't piece those things together. And so making sense sense of God is... It's like a step back. It's a little bit more pre-evangelism. It's dealing in some ways with more of the more of the questions that that people are asking and trying to help start starting from from there and taking them back a few steps to interrogate some of their assumptions. It's a little bit more presuppositional, I guess, is what I would say there. And so that comes a little bit from his background. Uh, you asked about some of the influences there uh, through Westminster Seminary. That's the work of Cornelius Van Til. Uh, more broadly within the Reformed tradition, that's that's the work of, of Herman Bavink in particular. Um, but then he he's exposed to a lot of new authors, a lot of new ideas uh, through his relationship with James Davison Hunter, uh, the the leader of the Institute for the Advanced Studies of Culture at the University of Virginia, becomes a friend of his, a fellow, fellow Presbyterian, and, and Hunter introduces him as a sociologist to an entire world of social criticism. And a lot of these social critics were taking on a, a kind of post-enlightenment condition where we're moving away from a lot of the basic assumptions of Western culture the last you know several centuries. And uh, so there you get people like Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, you get Philip Reeve. you get Robert Bella. And all of a sudden, his writing, his speaking, his preaching start to take on more of those tones. And by that point, he's thinking, well, maybe we don't so much need some of this evidentialist apologetics about the resurrection or about uh, the canon of scripture, though those are good and necessary, mm-hmm. but maybe we need to shift our priority more about um, back to this social criticism. Uh, more along the lines of getting back to what Augustine had done in the late Roman Empire uh, with his work the City of God. So that's where a lot of those influences come in and um, just gives us a good model for for all of us of how, how you continue to grow and you, you never stop learning, you never stop adapting. Um, we, never, we never lose that gospel core either um, as a Christian. Mm-hmm.
0: Two other influences that you write about which uh, have had just a tremendous impact on Tim is uh, Barbara Boyd. And then also um, Kathy, his wife as well. Can you maybe start with Barbara and then move on to Kathy and kind of talk about like the influence and the impact that both of those women Mm -hmm. had on Tim?
1: Yeah. So you'd really see a common theme throughout Tim's life of the, of the influence of uh, strong female leaders That starts with his mother, which was not always a positive influence, but it was certainly a formative one. And then from there, the the first one you see afterward is Barbara Boyd, and she's the first female staff member for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And she essentially taught her Bible in Life series on inductive Bible study, something she'd learned through her work with C. Stacey Woods in InterVarsity, who had been mentored by Martin Lloyd Jones. And so so she's really teaching him. Uh, and many other college students at the time shortly after his conversion she's teaching inductive bible study observation and and application observation interpretation application of the text Um, one of the things that that boyd would do is simply ask the students to to stare at a a text of scripture and you know spend say three minutes or so doing that and after about a minute or two the students would think well that's that's a waste of my time. I've already figured this out. And then when they'd get done after three minutes, she'd say, "All right, now stare at it for thirty. All of a sudden at the end of 30, you just have all these all these insights popping all over the place. And so she taught him that she also did um, she also taught about lordship um, about how when you say yes to the Lord, you're, you're going all in. You can't just give him a part of you. you've you got to give him your all. That's what he demands of you to be following Christ, pick up your cross and to follow him. Uh, so that was what, what Barbara Boyd taught him. And then at the same time, during those undergraduate years, specifically in that junior year of his, he he gets to know a, a new student on campus and, and she's got a sister and and you know kind of gets connected broadly speaking, also through this new place called Ligonier Valley Studies Center out in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, outside of uh, Pittsburgh western pennsylvania gets to know this woman named kathy christie um they went off to gordon conwell together became best friends essentially tim was dating somebody else at the time they come best friends tim breaks up with that with that girl and and um basically kathy gives him the ultimatum (laughs) you're either gonna start dating me or we're not friends (laughs) anymore and um and they, they they quickly quickly got together and And married right before they had finished their seminary um for the last semester so and kathy is the she's the influence of influences uh she's there not only for almost his entire christian life but she introduces him to so many of his other influences cs lewis was the biggest one um kathy deserves a whole book in her own right as one of the last people to ever correspond with cs lewis (laughs) Um, writing him as a as a twelve and thirteen year old girl, uh, she um, she she carried on that correspondence with him. So, um, and she introduced him to all sorts of other theological mentors, and and was such a strong uh, theological interlocutor with him uh, through their Edmund P. Clowney fan club that they helped to found at Gordon Conwell. So, yeah, Barbara and Kathy both exceptionally strong influences, and and Kathy is the you know, the biggest influence in his life by far.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear, you know, as it concerns like Tim's family and whether that be his own siblings or even um, with Kathy or his parents or his kids, I'd just be interested to hear like what stood out to you about like how of just how Tim interacted with his family, you know, and especially like juggling like ministry and pastoral duties and stuff like that.
1: So you're talking about his own wife and kids there, not his parents? well even yeah, so,
0: even 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 both as well because i think um, that's just a dynamic that you know we we all have to deal with and so i guess just looking into inside of what helped him with his family because you know you mentioned it a little bit sometimes some his family wasn't always uh wasn't always easy
1: yeah yeah i think definitely when you look back on his family of origin he's uh uh, Tim is six four, very tall, like his father was, and um, his father was just very quiet. Father worked a lot. Um, I think in, in some ways, I, I'd mentioned to one of their friends uh, who knew them at the time that he was he was especially it was especially quiet. Um, but I said, well, that's kind of normal for the era. Father works and things like that. And I said, no, it was he worked a lot, even more so than normal. It was even more quiet. In the home and i think that was in part uh just due to the very dominant influence of tim's of tim's mother and and that had a had a big influence it was it was difficult in a lot of ways in different ways for all three of the of the Keller children uh for tim and his sister and and his younger brother so that was that was a major theme that i really didn't know much about at all when i started the book and then with, with tim's own family um I, Kathy talks a lot. I didn't really get into this in the book because it's primarily focused on his influences. But yeah. um, uh, Tim, I mean, Tim has a good relationship with his family now. Um, it just, it, it was hard. Um, Tim works a lot. We're, we're talking like ninety hundred hours a week, yeah. just works a lot. And um, that is not always easy when you're, when any, any pastor, anybody in ministry, they, they have a hard time with that. And I don't think the yeah. Kellers were any exception. But uh, one of the things that Kathy is very quick to point out is is how much her her sons admire their father. And and Tim and Kathy also had a Kathy especially had a unique perspective on parenting. She just wasn't really that uptight about parenting. Yeah. Um, her thought was if, if you've got three kids, treat every one of them as if they're your last. Don't get too uptight about it if at the end of the day they're they're not dead and they're not in jail you've probably succeeded as a parent. <laughs> so um yeah, it's just uh I, there's a reason they haven't written a parenting book and yeah. um but there is there is a there there is actually a a good reason for that. One of the things that Tim and Kathy told me is that uh they don't feel like they were great parents but they're really thankful for how their boys, their three boys turned out. But they know a lot of other friends who were great parents in their estimation, and a lot of their kids did not turn out very well. And so it just felt to them like we shouldn't um, leave a mistaken impression about sort of rules or practices that you follow that guarantee a certain outcome with your kids, because it just doesn't seem that that's the way the Lord uh, typically works. Yeah.
0: You mentioned that Kathy introduced Tim to C.S. Lewis. Do you want to talk about the influence that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had on Tim? Which was a surprise. It was a very pleasant surprise going yeah. through the book and finding that.
1: Yeah. So uh Mako Fujimura, the visual artist, was an elder at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, where which Tim had, had founded. Tim and Kathy had founded. And he said that you could always tell... When Tim had not had time to prepare his sermon that week, and it was when he quoted Lewis a lot, and so if you just if you just woke Tim up in the middle of the night and you asked him to preach a sermon, uh, you would have gotten a lot of C.S. Lewis quotes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the influence of of Lewis um, as somebody who uh, Tim's not alone in this, uh, but of somebody who has unique abilities and insight as a as a theologian, um, as a theologian, I guess, just as, as a, as somebody who can help us to imagine the biblical, um, eternal Christian faith in especially vivid ways. And so, Kathy, Kathy recommends the Narnia series. It was something that was really meaningful to her as a child. She recommends to Tim to read that when he's, when he's in college and, and Tim passes that along to others, but, but certainly, um, Mere Christianity was a particular influence to Tim at the at the time of his college years, uh, as an apologetic work. And then um, uh, Tolkien, that I think the influence is in some ways well, it's hard to judge, but I I, I would say Tim prefers Tolkien's fiction to Lewis's. Yeah. Um, that that's I, Tolkien doesn't engage in apologetics or not at least not much yeah. of it compared to Lewis. And so that part is definitely more Lewis as a wider breadth of writing. But in terms of the fiction, uh, Tim's definitely in the Tolkien camp there. And um, the influence of Tolkien is so significant for Tim that he just never stops reading Tolkien. He's just always reading something um, yeah. there. And so there's a partic- there's a couple different aspects of Tolkien in particular that have been influential to Tim. One is Tolkien's view of work. Um, and that comes in a, in a section um, in his in his work called uh, *Leaf* by Nigel. Uh, in particular, he uses that illustration a lot. And then the other is his sense of you catastrophe. The way that all stories echo scripture. The way that right before the you know right before the dawn, you know the dark is darkest. But then you know that reversal. So you see that theme so often in Tolkien's fiction. And the way he describes it is it's it's, it's basically a literary trope or a literary theme. That resonates across literature because it's woven into the very fabric of creation um as god intended and, and throughout the christian story so those are the two areas in particular and then just this lord of the rings in general when september 16 2001 when tim's preaching after the after the 9 11 attacks it's it's tolkien he goes to uh with this with a statement of uh statement to gandalf about about his return and mm-hmm. and the comment is everything sad going to come untrue can't remember if that's sam or frodo somebody out there is gonna gonna call me on that um and uh um, but that of course that's the that's the beauty there and so tim uses that to describe the resurrection the new creation this 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 awe inspired response of this 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 awesome response of wow is is everything sad in this world going to come untrue and yes with christ's return that it will um, as, the, as the true and better Gandalf, I guess we could say. So um, they both had a, a huge influence, um, have a huge influence on Tim and uh, in their own ways.
0: Yeah. Talk to me about September 11th and how that affected Tim and being in the city and even how that affected Redeemer as well.
1: Yeah. Redeemer certainly grew by leaps and bounds through that, um, uh, through that tragedy. Uh, there were you know, some thousand people at least who showed up at those services more than normal. And um, and it, it, I think, yielded some 800 new members to the church. And um, they didn't lose many members in the attacks themselves, but the experience was simply so incredibly traumatic for New Yorkers that mm-hmm. it lingered for years and years and years to come. And I think it's the closest before his retirement that Tim ever came to resigning. He had his own health problems, thyroid cancer, Kathy had her problems, health problems, Crohn's disease. And it was just so taxing health wise, but the church was in such distress because of all of the, the growth and the, and the challenge that it really stretched Tim's administrative leadership beyond the breaking point. And he just wasn't sure he would be able to make it; that he would be able to continue going uh, in ministry. And so it was—it was deeply painful. Um, uh, clearly, the Lord, I mentioned the story of a couple Redeemer leaders who who, who became Christians through that process. Churches gave a million dollars from around the world to support um, for the benevolent fund of the church. And so the Lord did a lot of remarkable stories there, but. It was, it was difficult. I will say the the other thing that, that stands out to me, though, about 9-11 is that um, you take it for granted in some ways that the city did not collapse the way those mm-hmm. towers did. Um, and I mean just by people leaving, being scared. And, and a lot of that was a specific message from Tim Keller, uh, not to leave, and Redeemer's mm-hmm. leaders not to leave, but to stay and to love and to serve their city. And so I think that in god's providence that was a key factor in in helping that city to recover uh from such uh, such incredible devastation
0: mm-hmm. that even brings to mind like something um that you write about that you know that tim uh lived out in this idea of like city growth versus mm-hmm. church growth as well can you um yeah. kind of unpack that and how how tim lived that out mm mm-hmm. mhm I should say, how Tim it's, lives that out, not lived, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah he definitely he definitely continues to, especially yeah. in his ongoing role with Redeemer, city to city. Um, I, one of the things that tim says has said so many times that has resonated with me is that as much as we love our church and as much as we think that our church does things the right way god does not seem to be limited by our understanding of our church being right about everything (laughs) it seems that the lord chooses to use a lot of different kinds of church to be able to reach a lot of different kinds of people in any given city and so um redeemer could have i mean redeemer has been and is a large church some five thousand members at one point But in the grand scheme of things what's five thousand members in a city of 8 10 12 million people it's just not that much right so if you're going to reach any sizable part of any population you're going to have to get a lot of people i mean you're gonna have to have a lot of churches and you're going to have to recognize that those churches are not always going to do things the exact same way that you do and so that's why um redeemer has pursued a, a a uh, kind of two two part approach. One of them is a is a strategy to to be in the city and to love the city as Christians. Yes, to be distinct from, but not entirely separate from the rest of the city. That's a strategy to love the city. But then also to have an open handed policy, an open hearted policy as well toward working with other churches and starting different kinds of churches. And that's not something everybody loves about Tim Keller. Some Presbyterians think that he. Should have been more narrowly focused on churches that get everything right, um, as Presbyterians think. But, um, but yeah, his mentality—I think—probably going all the way back to interVarsity, going all the way back to Gordon Conwell, has been that while you have, are, you know, you have convictions, um, God seems to bless people who who don't share your convictions, and and there are limits to that for sure. Um, limits of orthodoxy, um, of biblical fidelity. But, um, you know, within that, there's uh, some room room to cooperate with others.
0: Now, mm-hmm. yeah. the other thing that really stands out about Redeemer that you write about in there is the, like the entrepreneurial uh, mindset and kind of um, maybe strategy that goes along with that. Can you talk about that and how that, um, how Redeemer just lived that out? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that was especially true in Redeemer's early years, and and in some ways, it's it's continues to be true through their through the broader city to city church planning efforts. But um, uh, early on, I, I described Redeemer as the land of yes, uh, the land where everyone could could say, "I've got an idea, I want to try this," and and Tim and other church leaders would say, "All right, you want to do all night prayer meetings with the first goal for like." go ahead and do it. You don't need us to be there. Go ahead and, and do it. Um, I did describe though, that, that there are limits to that. That works pretty well for a church plant, but when you grow and, and you've got a thousand plus people coming, it it requires certain levels of, 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 uh, uh just administration at that point. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. often uh, tripped up Tim over the years, but, uh, uh, Tim himself is is a is a dynamic entrepreneurial leader in the kinds of ideas and and uh, and programs that he spawns just through his visionary leadership through his writing through speaking through his teaching and so he's cultivated that kind of environment um, in the church and so in many ways it it, it remains a cutting edge network um, and but Tim has always said that, Every movement dynamic needs to institutionalize, and one reason you continue to plant churches is that you can revitalize the broader institutional network. So, mm-hmm. um, a lot of Redeemer's innovation doesn't necessarily come through their church, but through their okay. starting of other churches.
0: Now, what surprised you the most? You know, you did you know, a few years of interviews. What surprised you the most of just learning about Tim? Even something that stood out to you.
1: Uh, Certainly the thing that comes to mind in terms of surprise was learning more about Tim's brother, Billy. Um, I knew just a little bit about his brother. I knew he had a brother. I knew his brother had died of AIDS. I knew his brother had been gay. Um, I I just didn't know many details beyond that. I didn't know much about his brother's conversion in hospice, about his family's uh, relationship with him, how they handled all of that. I didn't know much about that. I didn't know what Tim preached at the funeral, what message he delivered there. I didn't know he even had preached at the funeral. All those things were new to me and, and ultimately new to the world. I don't think any of those oh. things is public before this book. So, um, yeah, that was definitely a, a surprise. I mean, the other surprise is, is that Tim and other students founded Table Talk magazine. I didn't realize that. <laughs> um, I'm not sure they even put two and two together before that. Yeah. Before this book. I'm not sure anybody knew that at yeah. some level because um, that was a discovery that I made as I was looking through some documents from those years that came from Tim's uh, uh, Tim and Kathy's friend, Louise Midwood. And then I had also been reading a recent biography by Steve Nichols of R.C. Sproul and thought, wait a minute, I've seen this before. No. And so, yeah, I know many people would associate Tim Keller with a rogue student publication de- denouncing his professors as heretics. That's a, I, I didn't have that on my bingo card <laughs> for yeah. this book.
0: Uh, well, I got one other question I want to ask you, but before that, I know that there's lots of other things that we could talk about in this book, but is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover about the book?
1: Yeah. Uh, I just I'm just interested for people to give their feedback on... Uh, on on their on their own lives to be able to use tim keller's life of reflecting on their own how how do you grow and mature and change without abandoning really important core beliefs how do you how do you become more of who god has called you to be without necessarily just skipping from mm-hmm. You know, from from belief to belief to belief. You know, how do you, how do you mature instead of just chasing trends, you know, mm-hmm. f- following fads? Um, that's the part that just sticks out to me. That I hope people will reflect on as they, as they read the book. It's hopefully there's fascination of Tim and all these other people and history, and I hope all I hope all of those things come through in the book. But I hope it it provokes people to think on their own lives and and give thanks to God for how. He's worked. Uh, he's worked in their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Last thing I want to ask is, you know, just while going through this process, what was most meaningful or impactful to you? Whether it be, you know, a conversation or a story that you heard or anything like that.
1: Yeah. You know, first person I talked to with the book was was Tim's sister, and I noticed something with Tim's, his sister, with his sister and one of his sister's-in-law, and then also with his, um, one of his longest time colleagues, Catherine Alsdorf at Redeemer, it was just a strong strain of, of appreciation for Tim, of deep emotional affection for Tim, without any idealization any any sense of perfection or any expectation that that he would always get everything right or that it would always do the right thing or was always gifted at everything they, they knew that that none of that was true yeah. um but also reminded me of of, uh, of tim's brother-in-law um uh, jim pickard he he told me it would go on a lot of vacations with uh with the keller's uh and kathy's sister sue and her husband they were Undergrads, freshmen, when Tim, and, uh, when Tim was a junior at Bucknell. And they would say, yeah, you, you, I mean, Tim would, first of all, they, they told me after the book, this is not in the book, so you're getting this special on your <laughs> podcast. They told me that Tim would bring suitcases full of books on vacation. That was one thing. I forgot yeah. to put that in. They didn't tell me about that. And then they'd say, you'd be going somewhere. You'd be, say, in South Carolina, you'd be touring Charleston. Tim would take you on a tour walking to her. And he you know or he'd be sitting there on the beach and he would just break out in a 45-minute lecture about something. And I remember Jim Pickert saying, "You know, some people might think that that was not maybe the right way to do things, but you know it's Tim. It was pretty interesting. You you were kind of happy to just sit there and listen and learn. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't that bad." And um I liked I liked thinking about that. I thought that was pretty I thought that was pretty fun, and and I thought, yeah, a lot worse ways to spend your time than sitting on a beach reading books with Tim and occasionally just listening to him launch into some sort of monologue <laughs> on something interesting. It's a he's a good teacher and he's a great learner, so that'd be pretty fun.
0: Yeah, well, Colin, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book. You know, Timothy Keller and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things?
1: Uh it's go to timothykellerbook.com. dot com. And uh, come to thegospelcoalition.org. You can check me out on Twitter at Colin Hansen, two L's, H-A-N-S-E-N.
0: Awesome. Well, Colin, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work, uh, and, you know, chronicling Tim's influences and sharing it with us. Great. Thanks, Caleb. You know, I think reflecting on the conversation with Colin and even just the greater book as well, I am, I'm encouraged by the life that Tim had, because if you think of somebody who is a lifelong learner, Tim is definitely that person. He he continued to learn from a broad variety of people and sources, and I'm not going to lie, it. It was funny, you know, whenever Colin mentioned him taking suitcases of books, I don't know about a suitcase of books, but I have been known to take uh, quite a few books on vacation and make my way through them as well. And then also just his love of fiction, I just greatly resonated with as well, because that has been something that I have just grown more in love with over the past few years is just my love of diving into such a great story and the parallels to uh to the great story that, that he mentioned about with christ is wall and just so many of the overlapping themes in that so those are some of my takeaways from this conversation if you want to keep up with me and some of the things i'm learning from please subscribe to my Substack, and again you can find that in the show notes And with that, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Colin for being on the podcast today. Thank you to St. Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.